So hand it over. Thanks. All right, so I'm going to apologise in advance because we're going to cover quite a bit today. So I'll be paraphrasing some bits and skimming through some bits, and hopefully you'll be paraphrasing some bits so I don't have to. Um, but yeah, we'll see how we go. Um, so last week Sarah was talking about Israel's expectations of the Messiah and some reasons why some of them didn't recognise Jesus as fitting the description uh, based on their history. Um, they're expecting someone to save them from the immediate oppressive rulers um, and also their bad experience with the last guy that claimed to be God, if you remember the story about that. Um, so when we speak of Messianic prophecy... When we talk about a Messiah in Hebrew, it's the same as Christ in Greek, so meaning God's anointed person to carry out his plan to liberate. Um, so what we're looking at is the Messiah was predicted in the Old Testament to liberate and restore God's people from all forms of evil. Um, so yeah, God, the unveiling of God's future plan would be achieved through this Messianic figure. Um, so last week she mentioned this verse that was really important, and I want to sort of revisit that and kick off from there for that. Um, so if we can have our first reading. Luke 4, 18 to 21. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Alright, so the background around that one was that Jesus was teaching in the synagogue and he got handed the scroll of Isaiah. So he's reading his scripture reading as he should. But then he stops it early and sits down and says what that was talking about is happening today. So not the normal scripture reading that they're used to. Um, so this is the first time publicly that he's claimed an Old Testament prophecy and applied it to himself and said, that guy that they're talking about, that's me. So it's quite a big moment. Um, so we're going to, yeah, like I said, we're going to do a, a rush through some of the arguments we see in the book of Acts and other places, and the goal is to look at the ways that Jesus convinced people who he was, and also the ways that the disciples convinced people to believe in him after his death and resurrection. Um, so yeah, we're going to look at quite a few different passages. To start with, I want to rush through the first parts of Acts chapter 2, so not really with the goal of understanding every aspect, um, but to look at the big picture of how they formed their arguments and the way they did things. So don't worry if it doesn't make sense to begin with. By the end of it, hopefully it should, if I've done my job right. Um, so this is also the first sermon of the early church after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Um, so this is happening at the day of Pentecost. So it's quite cool to see the first time they try and explain these events as well. There we go. Um, so this picture here, if you can see it, what does that look like a picture of? Pentecost. I feel like you might have cheated. <laughs> but, but yes, you're correct. So we have a little tongues of fire, fire hovering above people. Um, so I might get you guys to paraphrase this one. What, what happened at this event? <coughs> Spirit touched people. Spirit touched people, and what did they do? Very good. Alright. So we see this strange event happening at the start of Acts. 
um, tongues of fire land on them, they start speaking in various languages, and it's a very supernatural and unusual event. And they don't try and explain the situation on their own authority. It wouldn't really work, but can you imagine them saying, I, I know this looks weird and you haven't really seen it before, but, but trust us, you know, it's from God. It, it's not quite going to cut it. And so the way that they do it um, is they quote some Old Testament scripture, which would be have a second reading. So this is from Acts chapter 2, and how they explain what's going on. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. Right, so, yeah, as you can see, they're quoting something that one of the prophets, Joel, spoke about, and they're saying that thing that he was talking about. That's, that's what's going on. Um, and it's quite important because we've seen it quite a few times in Jesus' life that just because something was supernatural didn't necessarily mean it was from God. And the people often attributed the things Jesus was doing to other gods or demons or supernatural forces. So just because it was weird and supernatural doesn't automatically mean that, hey, that's God. So by them pointing to their own scriptures and saying, hey, you believe that prophet Joel, and he said something like this will happen in the future, that was a much more important thing to the Jews than just a weird supernatural event. Um, so it's quite an important part of their, their arguments that they had. Um, and so this supernatural strange event got everyone's attention, obviously, and it got, yeah, got their attention enough that Peter was able to segue into the first sermon. So... This is also a few days, uh, 50 days after the events of Jesus. So everyone had known what had gone on with the crucifixion of Jesus. He had died. All these people were saying that he's ascended again. Yeah, so lots of crazy things going on. But it was fresh in everyone's mind. They all knew what was going on. Um, so I'm going to just paraphrase the next part of Acts chapter 2. So Peter gets up for his sermon after he's got all their attention and said what he just said. Uh, and he reminds them that Jesus was given over to you by God's plan. It wasn't an accident. And you killed him, but God raised him from the dead. And then he quotes something that David says and points out that it doesn't actually make sense if David is talking about himself. And he says that David was actually talking about the future Messiah. So this leads us to our third reading. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. Thank you. Alright, so this is something that David wrote. Then I'm going to paraphrase again the next part of Acts. Peter says that David died and was buried. His tomb is here to this day. But David was a prophet, and he spoke of the resurrection of his descendant, the Messiah, that his body would not be abandoned in the realm of the dead, and that his body would not see decay. He then emphasizes that David did die, and he did not ascend to heaven, and his body has decayed. That prophecy of David makes no sense if he's talking about himself, otherwise it's, he's claiming a failed promise, right? If his body's in the ground and he's decayed. Not much hope there, but it makes perfect sense in the light of the events that have just taken place and that he was speaking of his descendant Jesus. Jesus had just died and resurrected and ascended into heaven. So again, that's not saying that all those strange events that were happening with Jesus were just 
weird supernatural events. He's saying they were, that they were talking about this in our old prophets. They knew this was going to happen. And as I skip to the end of that chapter in Acts, um, it summarises by saying that those who accepted his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And again, I, I don't think that's necessarily attributed to the, the supernatural aspect of that day. Obviously, that got their attention. But what convinced them was, was that actually the reasoning and what they knew they believed in saying what you believe is actually making more sense in Jesus than what you think. So this is sort of the, the more obvious example of, as prophecy is declaration or fulfillment. Um, so yeah, they're, they're the more obvious ones of prophecy. Someone back in time said this, and then in the future it happens. Pretty easy. Um, but another thing that we see quite a bit, which is a bit more subtle at first, but once you start seeing them, they're everywhere. And these are called types or shadows. So a type is in like a prototype, and a shadow is in a foreshadowing. So the way I get my head around this is these models up here, you would call that a prototype. So you wouldn't actually get on that bike. It's it's a, something to give you an idea of something to come. So it's um, yeah, to give you an idea of something. They're a representation of the thing, but not the thing itself. They help to explain a concept, but they're in anticipation of the real thing to follow. So if someone pitched an idea for a new bike and said it's going to work like this, you'd expect something better is actually going to come after that, not sell people cardboard bikes. So that's, this is what we're going to look at here. Um, so without the Old Testament as a prophetic story, the Gospels would be significantly emptied of meaning. So this is talking about typology, not just specific predictions like we looked at before, but prophetic content interwoven into the story of Israel itself. So this is in their historical events and their covenants, the leaders, systems and rituals. Um, we'll look at a couple more of these in the weeks to follow. Um, but to start with, these things like the tabernacle and the temple system. Um, I think Sarah touched on this a few weeks back, but how that foreshadowed that Jesus would become God's presence on earth. And now we don't go to a place, we go to a person. Um, and Matthew's Gospel in particular just hammers this point the whole time, that Jesus is a greater prophet than Moses, he's a greater king than David, a greater high priest than Aaron, um, the sacrificial name of God. So without that Old Testament content, the, the New Testament actually hasn't got a lot. Um, so yeah, the, the New Testament authors go to great pains to show how the Old Testament rituals and events were shadows pointing to Jesus. So there's quite a lot of these in the Bible. Um, the big ones, as mentioned, around things like the sacrifices and feasts. And in a couple of weeks, Graham will be looking at Passover, which is a pretty awesome one. Um, so it's amazing to see how many of these sort of strange events that don't make a lot of sense when you read them in the Old Testament. They make a lot more sense when you view them through the lens of how is this foreshadowing Jesus or how is this anticipating the fulfillment of God's future plans through Jesus. So to introduce this concept, I'll look at one of my favourite examples, and I know lots of you will be familiar with this one, but for me, when I first discovered it a few years back, I was really amazed, and it opened my eyes to see how integrated the Old and New Testament was, and that if we just ignore the Old, we actually miss out on so much of the richness that we find in the New Testament. I remember thinking when I saw this that God's really smart, obviously he is, but he's really smart to, to pull off not just a handful of these, but so many. And I love seeing how Jesus, it, it sounds stupid to say, but he, he knew what he was talking about. And he would tie these things together in ways that, yeah, just mind-blowing. 
So it's just really cool to see them and used in his conversations and his arguments to convince people. Uh, it's kind of like it's kind of like a nerdy treasure hunt when you hear what he says and it doesn't make sense and you've got to find out what he was referring back to. So we're going to do one of these today. Um, so I want to look at something that Jesus refers to in the Gospel of John. And a bit of background on that. He's speaking with this guy called Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish council. So one of the experts in the law, a teacher of Israel. And he came to Jesus at night. He was curious in Jesus and what he was on about, but not bold enough to be seen in public with him. We have our next reading. Readings from John 3, 13 to 16. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So that last bit we're probably all familiar with, but the bit before it, maybe not so much. I mean, that's the bit that I actually want to focus on more. So you see in the middle of this conversation, Jesus chucks this flashback into something that Moses did, and he doesn't explain it, he just keeps on going. So Nicodemus, he knew the Torah well enough, and he would have known exactly what he was referring to, and if he didn't at the time, he certainly would in hindsight. This was a few nights before Jesus was crucified. Um, so I want to dig into the Old Testament and track down what Jesus is referring to, and we'll see how that makes so much more sense. Um, so we're going to go back into the book of Numbers, and just to set the scene, uh, the Israelites have just been led out of Egypt, so they've seen lots of miracles. The Red Sea is parted, um, being magically fed manna falling from the sky, drinking water from a split rock, all these amazing things, and they start grumbling, and they spoke against God and Moses, which leads us to our next reading. The second reading is from Numbers 21, 6-9. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake, and he put it on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by the snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. All right, so you see what's going on there? Um, So, yeah, they're grumbling against God, and all of a sudden they're getting attacked by these snakes. People are dropping dead all over the place. They cry out to Moses, you know, talk to God, and we've sinned against God and against you. Um, so lots of the images we see of this depict the snake with on a pole with a cross beam, or sometimes a bit lower in the form of an actual cross. Um, if you think about it, trying to make a, stay, a snake stay up on a pole would be pretty tricky without much to fasten it to. Um, so I'm not hammering that point that it was definitely a cross or definitely a cross beam, but probably quite likely. But anyway, leave that with you guys. So they're being attacked by the snakes, they recognise their sin, and God commands them to do this really strange thing. 
And what's weirder is that it works. He says, build a snake out of bronze, put it on a pole, and have the people look at it. That's all. That's it. Don't need to do anything complicated, just look at it. And something I find really weird about this is the next verse, verse 10, says, The Israelites moved on and camped at Oboth, if that's how you pronounce it. So after all that, make the snake, look at it, the people were healed, and then moving on. Doesn't even attempt to explain what was going on there, just next scene. Um, yeah, and we don't hear anything more of it in, in the Bible until uh, about 500 years later, just a brief mention that King Hezekiah ends up destroying the thing because the people start worshipping it. So that's, that's all we hear of the snake. Um, and it had become an idol, and they, yeah, they, eventually he destroyed it. But if we look at the symbolism there... Oh, sorry, that's a modern-day sculpture that's on Mount, Mount Nemo in Jordan, looking over the Dead Sea. It's just an interesting place. That's where they reckon it happened, and some people have put up a serpent on a pole. Um, but the symbolism that we see in here, the image of the serpent, everyone gathered there would have made the connection with the serpent from the garden. The serpent, for this reason, was the first judgment we read about in Genesis. Um, and here they're face to face with the serpent, with the symbol of disobedience and rebellion. So God, by telling them to put this symbol up on a pole, he's saying, I'm going to show you the way to redemption. And those who looked at it were healed and forgiven. So step back and look at those elements. The nation is staring at a cross, or maybe a pole. And as they look at this, they're healed and forgiven. They're just looking at it. They're not doing anything else. They're not told to do anything else. Anyone who looked at it was saved. So the imagery of the serpent has always been sin, wickedness, rebellion, evil. And the nation has been judged for their sin, wickedness, rebellion, evil. What we're looking at here is the imagery of substitution on the cross for the nation. Then the nation enters into forgiveness and healing because of witnessing a substitute for the sins on a cross. They're just witnessing it, just looking at it. So now if we jump back to that story fresh in our minds and we go to the conversation that we read in John 3 when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, that passing comment that just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, now that makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? Even more how Jesus continues, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So you can see the parallels that he's drawing from the symbols in that Old Testament and, and the point of that whole story. And it's kind of like, like a TV series, you know, when it gets to its you know, fifth or sixth series, and then they start making these inside jokes that refer back to season one, but only the true fans really get it. It's kind of like that. Um, God's written this story into the history of the world back in Moses' time. Uh, 1,500 years later is when Jesus arrives, around about. It's taken that long for that seed that he's planted of that imagery to actually make any sense at all, which I just think is amazing, and God is very patient. You can imagine him sitting in anticipation seeing if anyone's going to get it, you know? So one of the main things that I take away from seeing these types of these types or shadows is that it shows that God has a plan for the big picture of redemption, of how to make things right, and it shows that he had a plan for a long time and that he's control, in control and bringing it to fulfillment, which I think is really important. Often it seems like God isn't in control, 
um, seeing stuff like this gives me confidence that in the big picture at least God is in control even though it's taking a lot longer than I'd like and just get the music team to come on up for us so we're going to look at a few more examples of these in the, the rest of the series um, just a bit of homework for you guys next week so next week we're going to be focusing on sort of the last week or so before the crucifixion um, it'll be similar to this where we're going to be looking at lots of scripture and lots of paraphrasing and charging through it so it would be useful if you've got some time to do a bit of homework and read the last few chapters of Luke um, just find from when he arrives to Jerusalem and keep on going from there it's only about five chapters, it's not scary uh, but yeah, it'd be just good to have that fresh in your minds for next week and you